good trouble. That's a curious phrase. Trouble that's good? Is there such a thing? What does that even mean? Trouble. Let's start with a young black man named John Lewis growing up in rural Alabama in the 1950s. When John was old enough to read, he started noticing the signs around town. Some of the signs said, for white people, and some of the signs said, for colored people. And all his parents would say was, John, that's the way it is. Don't get in the way. Don't get in trouble. When he was 15, John heard a preacher on the radio named Martin Luther King Jr. who was calling for change. He said the time for justice was now, no more waiting. Then John learned about Rosa Parks, a woman who sat down to stand up against injustice. These people were definitely getting in the way and definitely getting into trouble. But John knew this was a good kind of trouble. The words and leadership of Dr. King and the action of Miss Parks inspired him. He decided that whatever the cost, he too was going to find a way to get in trouble. Good trouble. For her good trouble, Rosa Parks was arrested twice, lost her job, and was forced to move and face down death threats. For his good trouble, Martin Luther King Jr. was jailed 29 times, beaten, stabbed, bombed and eventually assassinated. And for John Lewis, he was arrested 45 times, attacked, harassed, and beaten near death. To John, it was all worth it. And he would say again and again, when you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, say something, do something, get in trouble, good trouble. Find a way to get in the way. Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King Jr., and John Lewis were all followers of Jesus whose faith motivated them to good trouble. Flip through the pages of the scripture and you'll find lots of God's people doing the same. The Egyptian midwives Shifra and Pua defied Pharaoh's order to murder Hebrew boys. Rahab resisted the king of Jericho and hid the Israelite spies. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Queen Esther put her life on the line to save God's people from the wicked schemes of Haman. Peter and John boldly preached the gospel when it was forbidden. Jesus himself was known as a troublemaker. Throughout church history, wherever you find kingdom people, you find good trouble. Kingdom people caring for the rejects and outcasts of society. Kingdom people martyred for faithfulness to Jesus and for translating the Bible. Kingdom people fighting to end slavery. Kingdom people in prison for their pacifism. Kingdom people worshiping in underground churches. Kingdom people marching and boycotting, repenting and praying, sacrificing and loving. The good trouble of the kingdom is disruptive. It disrupts violence with love, hatred with forgiveness, fear with peace, despair with hope, and death with life. So let us, like Dr. King, like John Lewis, and like Rosa Parks, find a way to get in the way. For the sake of justice, let us dedicate ourselves to good trouble. Good morning, Woodland Hills. I'm Greg Boyd, senior pastor here. I'm really glad that you have made the choice to be with us and share this moment, or maybe you're watching it later on, but I'm glad you're tuned in one way or the other. Good trouble. That's the topic we'll be talking about. I'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, our, our creative team is just so, so on spot. That was so, that was so good. Uh, I think we should give a shout out to Cedric who narrated that and Eric who did all the cool graphics on it, drawings on it. And we had a, a team of people that really worked on putting this whole service together. Uh, so a shout out to Stephanie and Emily and Oshida and Jerry and Dilan who also led worship this morning. Thanks so much you guys for the work that you put into this. It's, it's, uh, it was fantastic. Powerful, powerful video. Um, 
Before I get into this, however, I think it's right at this moment, this juncture in history, that we pause for a second. Uh, I don't need to, I'm sure, explain most of this to most of you, but this country right now is uh, facing some real potential violence. Uh, it turns out, at least the intelligence tells us, that there's a lot of indications that some folks are planning on trying to disrupt this inauguration and to not have a, tr a peaceful transfer of power. Uh, and, and, and I say all that to say this. If ever there's a time for God's people to pray for this country, it, it is now. It, this is it. This is, uh, we really need to uh, ask God to be power, this showering us with his shalom as we try to see our way forward on this. And that's part of our responsibility as kingdom people. Uh, to, do, to do good to whatever city, whatever country you find yourself in. To bless whatever city and country you find yourself in. So we want to be a blessing to this country. Um, and, and one of the ways we can do that is by using our unique kingdom authority uh, to intercede on behalf of this country. And in fact, I'd like to do that just for a moment here. Uh, and I encourage us to be doing that as we're heading, into, heading up to Tuesday. And then even after that, um, because this country needs it. Abba Father... As your uh, kingdom citizens, as your, as your children, we come to you and we want to use whatever authority we have, uh, our collective authority as people of prayer, to unleash an influence from heaven on this land. Uh, Lord, that, that you'd heal this land and begin to bring us back together again in some kind of a unity. Um, give us a, a, a vision of, of uh, the country that is bigger than our differences. And Lord, we pray, God, that you would be uh, interrupting in whatever ways you can providentially interrupt whatever the plans are of the folks to be causing violence. Uh, we pray that you disrupt those plans and give our leaders the wisdom to know the ways that make for peace, the way to head forward, the way to bring healing in this land. You said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then you will hear from heaven and you will heal this land. And so we are praying. Heal this land. Let there be no violence let this be a peaceful transfer of power. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. So I'm speaking on good trouble. Now, two things I want to say at the very beginning of this message, uh, just to give you a heads up on things. Uh, the message is on good trouble, but you won't know, you won't see how it's on good trouble for the first 15 minutes or so. So prepare to be wondering, what's this got to do with good trouble? Uh, you'll see what it's got to do with it in a minute. The second thing is that what I'll be sharing up front here um, is, is, is really a foundational teaching here at Woodland Hills Church. So this is going to be, if you've been at Woodland Hills Church for any length of time, this is going to be a review because it's about our call to love everybody. And, um, um, but it's a very important review, but it's, I also want to share it because we have acquired, I'm told, we're recording like new people almost every week. People are joining us. And so I want to be weaving in some of our foundational teachings into our ongoing uh, series uh, to, to bring people up to speed, to kind of say, well, here's where you are in case you're kind of checking out whether this is a congregation you want to be a part of or not. Here's what we stand for. Um, if you have not heard this before, it may be pretty shocking to you, surprising to you, depending on what your background is. And I just encourage you to have an open mind as you're hearing this. And, um, uh, and it won't become clear what this has to do with Martin Luther King for the first 15, 20 minutes either. But just keep an open mind. And this is all the more important, I think, because what I'll be sharing here in the first part of this message is, is, is an aspect, it's a dimension of Martin Luther King's philosophy uh, that has been largely left aside. It's the part of his legacy that's emphasized the least and that I think is the most important. So last Wednesday, we saw, not this last Wednesday, but the Wednesday before that, we saw something that was shocking to all of us as this mob stormed the, 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 the Capitol building. Um, it's important to remember that whenever you see a mob acting, doing stuff, acting violently, uh, you're seeing the most extreme fringe of that mob. Those are the folks that have the gumption to go and do stuff like this. So you can't, crowds are always much more diverse than we give them credit for. So you just got to know that. Don't judge the entire march and all the people who showed up there on the basis of what these, these more extreme folks did. These folks coming from various backgrounds, carrying Confederate flags and whatever, they, 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 what they wanted to do was to take over the rule. They didn't like the, the results that were reported on the election, so they want to overthrow this. They want to get the power to say no to that. And they're doing it because they believe that they have inside knowledge. Uh, they have the inside scoop about what's really going on. They're the one group that's not deceived. Everyone else is deceived. And whoever disagrees with them, well, that's fake news. And you're in a dangerous spot whenever you're in a position where <laughs> everything that disagrees with you, you just can dismiss as fake. Because that means now that you're quarantined from truth. Nothing can ever come into your world that could ever change your mind. You're locked in. 
Another way of saying that is that once you get to that point, you're controlled. Whoever's giving you their, feeding you your information, well, you just believe it and go with it. And it's a dangerous thing. But these folks, they believe they have the inside scoop on this. They don't even realize that they're, they're, they're being locked in this narrative is dehumanizing them. <laughs> they're being controlled. But they think they have, they have a superior knowledge and, and, and they, they believe that they care more than others and they believe that they love America more than others and so it, it's, they're doing America a favor by grabbing hold of this power and now they want to be able to impose their ideas on how to run the country and what it should be and whatnot. They want to impose it on everybody else. Now it's shocking to us because it's, we've never seen it happen in our, in our capital. But in another sense, this is, this is not new. In fact, it really is the oldest song in the book. Uh, it's the oldest song on record, and the record is broken. Uh, the kind of power that we've always lusted for is the power to be king of the hill. Power to rule the world. Believing that our ideas are superior, and we care more, and we have a superior morality than all the rest of those folks who disagree with us. Well, we should have the right to impose our will on theirs because our will is better. And it's been going on throughout history. And people will resort to whatever violence is necessary to grab hold of that power, to impose their superior will and morality on others. But see, it's a broken record because you, you, you use violence to get in the power, and before too long, violence will take you from power. And that has been the, the theme of history. <laughs> Jesus put it like this, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And he was right about that. It goes on and on and on. We want the power, to, power over others. Power to rule, power to defend, power to get our way, power to impose our law and order on others. Throughout history, this has been the, the, the cyclical violence. And millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of people have died in these wars to end all wars. We're going to get victorious and then our kingdom will reign forever, blah, 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 and it never works. See, Jesus comes into this power overworld where everyone's lusting after the power over. And Jesus introduces a, a completely different kind of kingdom and a completely different kind of power. It's not power over others, power to rule others, power to control others, power to impose your will on others. It's rather a kind of a power under others, a power to serve and transform others by your willingness to love them, and to sacrifice for them. Paul writes about this new kind of power in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 through 24. He says, we proclaim Christ crucified. <clears throat> That's our gospel. In fact, he uses gospel and Christ crucified synonymously, interchangeably. We proclaim Christ crucified. Now he's a stumbling block to Jews and he's fool it's foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and Christ is the wisdom of God. Here, throughout history, we, the gods have been defined as the ones who've got more power over us and religion's about us trying to get some of their power to help us do our battles and win our wars and not go through famines and whatnot. It's a quid pro quo deal. That's been the history of religion. Paul comes along here and gives a totally, totally different paradigm. The power of God isn't the power of these muscles to control and to impose whatever. The power of God is revealed and this crucified criminal, first century Jewish crucified criminal hanging on the cross. What could look more powerless than that? And yet Paul says this is the power of God. Because what he's getting at is this. The power of God is that love that led God, the almighty God, the creator God, who spoke everything into being and holds everything into being every moment. That God became a human baby and grew to become a human adult and then gave his life for us on the cross, died a God-forsaken death on the cross. And see, Paul is saying that that kind of love, that love that's willing to, to, to stoop that distance, that is the greatest power in the universe. That is the power of God. God's power isn't this control over power. It's this power to win hearts, to lure by the beauty of God's love. That's why Jesus says, if I'm lifted up, uh, then I'll draw all people unto me. Talking about the manner of his death in John chapter 12. Um, it's a completely different kind of power. I like to call it cruciform power. Cruciform. Cruciform just means shaped like a cross. It has the character of the cross. Uh, it's the power of self-sacrificial love, other-oriented love. It's a power of a humble willingness to serve. Now, cruciform power. Let's get clear on what it is and what it's not. It is not the power to let somebody walk all over you, make you into a doormat, treat you like your used handkerchief and throw you away. It's not the power to let somebody dominate you. There's no power in that. That's, that's just dysfunction. It's not the power to be a doormat. There's no power in being a doormat. And there's nothing loving about being a doormat. If someone is completely having power over you, dictating everything you do, you have no say-so in your life. Well, you're not in a, 
you're in a dehumanized condition. See, cruciform power is cruciform because it's also cruciform love. They're synonymous. And it's only a cruciform love when you choose to lay down something that you could use for your own advantage, but you use it to, you use it to someone else's advantage. You see, it's a voluntary thing. If, 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 if laying down something isn't voluntary, well, then it's not loving. If it's forced on you, it's not loving. So if you're in a situation where you've got nothing to lay down, you're in a, in a, in a, uh, a dehumanized situation. People are supposed to have some say-so. That's what it is to have personality. That's what it is to be a person. They have some say-so in what goes on in your life. So be, if you're in that condition, you've got to be thinking, what's the loving way to get out of this? Cruciform power presupposes that you've got some power to be cruciform with. Okay? It's about laying down your life. So th this is the power of, of uh, uh, the willingness of a person to take whatever advantages you might have and to take whatever uh, privileges you might have and to be willing to sacrifice them, to set them aside or to loan them out in order to enter into solidarity with people who don't have those advantages, who don't have those privileges, who are trampled on, the forgotten people, the invisible people, the marginalized people, the disinfected, the disenfranchised and disinherited people. Uh, cruciform love is about coming under them and saying you matter and you express that by what you're willing to sacrifice for them because this is what Jesus did for us. He showed what we were worth. He showed what we matter by what he was willing to sacrifice for us and what he was willing to sacrifice for us was everything. And that's how he says that we all individually have unsurpassable worth. Cruciform power. It's at the very center of Jesus' vision of, of the kingdom life. Now this kind of power, this willingness to sacrifice for the sake of others, this willingness to even love your enemies, as Jesus taught us, um, it looks weak and foolish to the world. The world's a power broker world. The power, the power they're, they're brokering is, is the power of control. And so in a world where it looks like it's the people who've got the might, the people who've got the wealth and the bombs and the bullets and the guns and the missiles and the nukes, those are the ones who decide who's going to be king of the hill. That's how the world runs. Who can get more of that power? Well, you're going to be king of the, king of the hill. And in a world like that, where everyone's mind is thinking like that, a guy who comes along or a woman who comes along and says, hey, I, I have a willingness to, to, to set aside my advantages to, for the sake of others who are disadvantaged. Well, that looks pretty pathetic. What kind of power is that? No, you got to blow up somebody. It looks weak and foolish. But, 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 but see, Paul says it is the power of God. In fact, the whole New Testament presupposes this is the power of God. And this is the character of God. And this is the salvation of the world. See, this is why it... it, it, it the idea that cruciform love is the greatest power in the world, it seems so counterintuitive. It, 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 it goes against common sense. Love your enemies. Well, that, that's going to get you killed. And it got Jesus killed, and yet he says it's the greatest power in the world. This is why this teaching of Jesus, has been, it's, it's one of his clearest teachings. It is, I think, I would argue, the clearest teaching that is the most systematically ignored or at least systematically watered down verse in the Bible. It's Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 through 45, where, where Jesus says, don't do that eye for eye thing, that tooth for tooth thing. That just leaves everyone blind and toothless. Rather, here's a new way of going about things. Love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. Now listen to this, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. What he's saying there is that we manifest that we are children of the Father in heaven when we love like the Father loves. And he tells us the Father loves like the rain, the rain falls and the sun shines. The Father loves indiscriminately. And that's how we're to love. We show that we're born from above and we can love the way the Father loves. And this makes, this is Jesus' number one criteria for what it is to be considered a child of God. That's why this is a big deal. It's a verse that we've got to pay a lot of attention to. And so while, the, while, while the cruciform love may look weak and foolish to the world, we're to trust that it is the greatest power in the universe. It is, in fact, the power of God. When you respond with your eye for eye, tooth for tooth, kind of customary tit for tat sort of thing that we usually do, all you do is you harden the person against you. Whoever's against you, when you respond violently, you're justified perhaps, but in their mind, you just confirm their negative attitude towards you. So you, you harden them in their stance towards you. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But when we respond with cruciform love, when, we, when, when our response contrasts with their aggression towards us, what it does is it highlights their aggression towards us. The contrast puts a spotlight on the wrongfulness of what they're doing, and it opens up the possibility that they'll see that what they're doing is wrong and have a change of heart. Paul tells us this in Romans 12 when he says, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If they're thirsty, give him something to drink. Because in doing that, you'll pour hot coals of fire on their head. Now the hot coals of fire, that's just a metaphor for bringing conviction or shame on somebody. 
And so Paul is saying here, respond in love, respond in kind, never repay evil for evil, a punch for a punch, a hit for a hit, an insult for an insult. No, that just, that just makes a violent, cyclical merry-go-round of the world keep on spinning. No, we opt out of that system and instead respond in love, affirming the worth of the person who is, stands against us. And that opens up the possibility that they'll become convicted of what they're doing, they'll see what they're doing, and they'll change. That's why this, this, this cruciform love, see, it, it's, it's the only power that has the possibility of changing a human heart. You can have all the guns and tanks and bullets and bombs and nukes in the world, and you can't make a person who's full of hate love. You can't transform a person who's full of violence into a nonviolent person. You can't make a person like you, not genuinely. You can force them to behave in certain ways, uh, but you can't actually bring about a change. The only thing that can bring about a genuine change inside of a person is when they start to discover their worth by virtue of your self-sacrificial love. And so this is the only, the only love, the only kind of power that holds out the promise of transforming individuals permanently. And therefore, if you transform enough individuals, you transform society. And see, this is what brings me to Martin Luther King. The genius and the greatness of Martin Luther King is that he had the audacity to actually believe this, to actually believe that this is the hope of the world, uh, that people can be changed by virtue of this kind of self-sacrificial love. Um, he saw it in, 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 in Jesus, modeled in Jesus. Uh, he got help from, from Gandhi, who also saw this. But uh, he had the audacity of saying, look it, and this comes out in a lot of his speech, a lot of his speeches in early writings, if you read, it's like Stride for Freedom. He talks about this. He goes, we've all, all throughout history, we've tried the same thing over and over again and have gotten the same results. King of the hill, who gets to be on top? Trying to get power over. And we just kill and kill and kill. It goes round and round and round. Some regimes last longer than others, but the violence that gets you into power is also the violence that will eventually take you out of power. So he says, what if we tried something different? What if we just give it a shot? He has the same kind of attitude as, 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 as Chesterton, who said, you know, it's, it's not like Christianity has been tried and found wanting. Rather, for the most part, Christianity has never been tried. And Martin Luther King was saying, well, let's give this a shot. What if there's enough people who said, we will march in the ways of Jesus. We'll, we'll live in the ways of Jesus. And we will refuse to retaliate. We will love our enemies. Martin Luther King saw this. And he saw that this is the hope of transforming uh, society. He said this in, in 1963. He goes, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate. Violence multiplies violence. And toughness multiplies toughness. And a descending spiral of destruction. The chain reaction of evil, and he used that phrase a lot, especially early on, that chain reaction of evil, that hate begets hate and wars produce more wars, that chain reaction, it's got to be broken or we'll be plunged into a dark abyss of annihilation. Someone's got to have the sense, he says, to opt out of this system, this sick, to see the pattern, it doesn't work, and to trust something totally different. Like Jesus said, you'd live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. The, the violence that gets you in power is the violence that will get you out of power. So he says, let's not use that kind of power, let's use a different kind of power. So before his marches, King would, 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 would tell his people, I don't, want, I don't want you to march unless you can promise, number one, that you will not retaliate, you will not resort to violence unconditionally. They will unleash dogs on you. They may unleash hoses on you. They may beat you. They may throw you in prison. They will do that. Step, abuse you in every possible way. You do not fight back. Because it's the contrast between what they're doing and how we're going to respond that's going to be our message. And then he said, number two, I don't want you marching unless you can genuinely say that you're doing it, not just for your own freedom, and the freedom of your people, though, of course, you're doing that. But you're also marching for the oppressor, out of love for the oppressor. Because they're being dehumanized in the lie that they think this is appropriate human behavior. They're trapped in their own lie. They're dehumanized in their own way. And that's where, it was in that context where Martin Luther King said, because see, until everyone's free, we're, and, and, and so long as there's any injustice anywhere, there's, we don't have total justice anywhere. And until everyone's free, none of us are totally free. So we march out of love for the oppressor. It was remarkable. In fact, Oshida showed me last night uh, a pledge card that they had in Alabama 1963. And the pledge card had 10 different things on it that everyone had to sign if they were going to participate in this march. And it was, it was strident. I mean, at one point he says, you can't have any violence in your, what was it, in your tongue or in your, in, your, in your actions, in your thoughts or in your words. Purge yourself of all violence. See, that is what makes Martin Luther King's movement not just a civil rights movement, though it is that, and praise God, it is a beautiful example of that. 
but it makes it a kingdom movement, a, a unique kingdom movement. He was going to actually take the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and apply it to a social problem. This Jim Crow law and white supremacy and that we, all that we had going on in the South. This is what John Lewis calls good trouble. When you refuse to conform to an unjust law that directly or indirectly says some lives matter more than others, some lives count more than others, when you refuse to conform to that, and you do it with a love and a commitment to never resort to violence, to not retaliate, and a commitment to see your oppressor set free, you are causing good trouble. And when you're willing to invite trouble in on your life, to be inconvenienced, maybe even to invite pain in your life that you otherwise could have avoided, when you do that for a just cause, for a kingdom cause, for a loving cause, and you're willing to disrupt the status quo, uh, well, that's causing good trouble. Insofar as you disrupt the status quo, insofar as it's unjust and, and, and ranking people in terms of worth and, and, and how much their lives matter, well, that's good trouble. And see, it was that commitment to the good trouble that I think makes Martin Luther King's movement uh, a distinctly kingdom movement. It's, it's perhaps the beautiful, most beautiful practical application of Jesus' philosophy on a social scale that we've ever seen. And to a large degree, it worked. To a large degree, it worked. Here's a picture of John Lewis, a famous picture. You probably, most of you have seen this, I'm sure. Uh, he, he's on Edmund Pettus Bridge, March 7th, 1965. This is when they marched across this bridge. And the troops from Alabama were waiting for them, and they just started to pulverize them, pulverize them. And so John took a terrible beating. Uh, and and uh, Martin Luther and, and those in leadership in his movement, they were gentle as doves, but they were also wise as serpents, as Jesus tells us to be. They were crafty. And so they knew how to, to some degree, manipulate the, the media here. They want cameras here because their goal is this. They want people to see the truth. All they're doing is pulling back, pulling back the, 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 the veneer that covers up this injustice to force people, especially people in the North, to say, this is what's happening underneath your nose. So easy for people in the North to look the other way. Not my problem. Yeah, maybe it's not perfect, but you know, that's their business, not ours. But when you can, the fact that they refuse to fight back, their, their gentle response contrasted with the over-the-top violence of the police force, and it shocks some people. It's, it's a lot harder to look away and say, oh, that's not my problem, when you see people being hosed down and dogs being unleashed and being beaten and thrown in prison for no other reason than because they're black. So it shocks some people, and they had sort of their George Floyd moment. My gosh, this is real. And see, it was because of that the awakening consciousness pouring hot coals of fire on people's heads by responding in love when they're coming at you with hate. That's what brought about the civil rights movement, brought an end to the Jim Crow South. See, that's good trouble. It's, that's good trouble. It's costly. It's, it's costly. It takes great courage. Um, and it takes great faith. You have to just believe that God will use your sacrifice to open the eyes of folks uh, to see the injustice of what they're doing on you. It takes faith. But see, this is just what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. This is what it means. Uh, Jesus is the all-time masterful troublemaker. He, he, he refused to go along with any of the unjust social taboos that were regulating his day. Uh, first century Jewish culture, like all cultures, they had a rating system. A rating system of who's important and who's not important. Whose life matters more and who, who's, whose lives matter less. And Jesus just refused to conform to that. Look at Jesus tells us, tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and it, 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 its righteousness, right? John six thirty three. Uh, the word righteousness there is uh, we've t taught a lot around here. The, the core meaning of it is right relatedness. You're righteous when you're rightly related to God, rightly related to yourself, rightly related to others, and rightly related to the earth and the animal kingdom. That's righteousness. So Jesus is the embodiment of the kingdom of God, uh, which means he embodies right relatedness. And so as he's living out his right relatedness, he bumps into all the ways in which the culture is not rightly related. He bumps into that hierarchy. But because he's committed to practicing right relatedness, he doesn't conform to the wrong relatedness of the hierarchy. He rather blows the hierarchy up just by the way, by the way that he lives. So for example, in first century Jewish culture, their rating system put the Jews on the top and the Samaritans and the Gentiles and those, especially those Romans, uh, they're, 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 they're dirty. They're lower down. And so a, a good, decent Jew wouldn't spend time talking with a Samaritan or a, a Roman or a Gentile, but uh, Jesus does. He treats these people as though they, with as much dignity as he'd treat anybody else. 
Because Jesus knows that uh, their role in life, their function in life, whatever they're doing, it doesn't affect the fact that they're made in the image of God. It doesn't affect the fact that Jesus came to die for them. So it doesn't affect the fact that they have unsurpassable worth. They matter unsurpassably. And Jesus just manifests that in the process of manifesting the one true kingdom of God. If you manifest the right relatedness of the kingdom, you're going to bump into the wrong relatedness of the world. Uh, in first century Jewish culture, uh, if, you're, if you're a male, that gives you a lot of points. You're at the top. Males are up here. Women tend to be down here. Uh, often viewed just as property, but not to Jesus. You look at the way he interacts with women. He treats them with the same dignity he would give to men. Even women of ill repute. He goes out of his way to talk to the, lady, the Samaritan lady uh, who has been married five times. And he doesn't go there to judge her. He goes there to set her free. <laughs> oh, praise God. He's, uh, he, just, he just doesn't go by the rules. He's caught and he's bringing trouble on himself in doing this. He's upsetting the social system. Anytime you upset the social system, the system doesn't like it. And you will be inviting trouble in your life. Uh, in the ancient... Jewish worldview in their hierarchy. You know, you, you have the decent folks and you have the indecent folks. And the indecent folks, you don't, you, you don't interact with them much. These are the tax collectors and prostitutes, you know, the, the real sinners. These are the people who are obviously judged by God. And in first century Jewish culture, you thought if, if a person's got a disease, they're being judged by God. They got leprosy. You don't want to touch them. They're the untouchable types. You know, they got deformities. They got sickness, the poverty, the beggars, whatever. These are the lowlifes. Decent Jews don't, don't mingle with those folks. But Jesus, these are the people he hangs out with. This is the people he most gravitates towards. It's the losers of the world, the outsiders. He gravitates towards them. And he tells us, his people, hey, when you throw a party, you know, don't do it just the way the world does, inviting your friends who can always invite you back. And you have that quid pro quo thing, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. No, when you, when you throw a kingdom thing, throw it in cruciform love and go out and invite the people that never get invited to parties. Get the, the people that, that, the invisible people, the marginalized people, the, the ones that get trampled on, go out and invite them. Because they can never repay you, but that's what makes it a kingdom thing. Throw parties for these folks. Jesus just does not conform to any of the the, the, the unwritten but strongly enforced social taboos of his day. He's a troublemaker, bringing good trouble on himself. In the end, that's why he gets crucified. He's manifesting the right relatedness of the kingdom in a, in a cultural context that has wrong relatedness everywhere, and that's going to invite trouble in your life, and it's going to trouble the, the status quo system. The, the bottom line is that it's a violation of the divine order of things as God intended things. Whenever, whenever cultures, and they all do it in different ways, but whenever cultures rank people, file people, according to what their race is or their culture or their gender or their class or their creed or, or their, their age or their abilities or their appearance or their accomplishments, whenever a culture rates people on, on those arbitrary criteria, it's out of line with God. And, and, and to be in the kingdom means we, we bump up against that. Because uh, our, our, our most fundamental job as kingdom people is to affirm that every individual life has got unsurpassable worth, no ifs, ands, or buts. And to manifest that by how we interact with them and what we're willing to sacrifice for them. It's beautiful, but it's costly. It is costly. That's what makes the kingdom. Uh, you know, in, in, in the, for the first three centuries of the church, uh, you find heroic examples of people who were willing to cause good trouble. Uh, they, they, just living out the kingdom, practicing right relatedness, following the teachings of Jesus, they bump into various ways in which their culture is, is out of whack. So the earliest Christians, uh, they took flack because they wouldn't fight in the military. They were pacifists. And as always happens, you know, when you question the validity of the military in any nation, well, the military is sacred in most nations, and, and, and so you're going to invite trouble on themselves. So Christians were persecuted for that reason. Uh, they, they, they refused to fight in the military. They refused to call the emperor Lord. They refused to even like to genuflect or nod when they went past the emperor's statue, which was considered treasonous then, but they wouldn't do it. And they're inviting a whole lot of good trouble on themselves, but it's their way of, of, of declaring Jesus Christ alone is Lord of our life. Uh, they, they would sometimes, in some regions, we, we, we know they would rescue babies that were thrown away. In, in Roman society, the father had absolute unquestioned authority to, uh, for the first two weeks of a baby's life to decide whether the baby lived or died. If there's any defect, any flaw, or sometimes it was just a woman, a, a, a girl baby, and he wanted a boy, he would say, it must go. The woman had, the mother had no, no say in this. And uh, they would throw them off bridges at night sometimes or leave them up on the hilltop or whatever. Well, Christians would hang out in those areas. And, and when they'd hear a splash or they heard a cry on the mountaintop or whatever, they'd go and rescue that baby. And see, that, that was widely viewed in Roman society as undermining the father's authority. You're undermining family values. And so the earliest Christians were known as being disruptors of the family because they were saying these, these little babies' lives matter. 
Uh, see, they, they just wouldn't conform to the pattern of the world and go according to the power over structure of the world. They rather were willing to sacrifice for the sake of others. Uh, they, the early Christians wouldn't own slaves, or if they officially owned slaves, they wouldn't treat them as slaves. Uh, they treat them as brothers and sisters in Christ, which means you don't lord over somebody. You treat them as equals. And we even find that in the Bible with, with Philemon. Um, and in fact, I've read that the, the early Christians were the first group to systematically oppose all forms of slavery. Now, that's pretty tragic when you consider this is in the second and third century. These folks were against slavery. 1,700 years later, you find Christians who are advocating it. That's sad, but the early church got this. And, 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 and so they were willing to sacrifice their own privileges following the example of Jesus, who, who, who didn't grasp after his equality with God, but laid it aside to enter into our humanity and enter into our fallen condition to redeem us. They followed that example. Instead of cashing in on whatever good luck they happen to have with privileges, or no, they were willing to set those aside for the sake of others. Now, the church lost a lot of its, its uh, cruciform character in the fourth century when Constantine bequeathed a whole lot of political power to the church. And unfortunately, the church there began to play the king of the hill game and began to think in terms of the world's power, coercive power, power to get your way. And this is what created what's called Christendom, the church militant and triumphant. And they thought they were going to take over the world the old-fashioned way with violence and, and whatnot. And they ended up doing a whole lot of bad trouble. But there's always been a, a, a stream of witnesses throughout church history who got the, who got the gospel and, and who understood uh, Jesus' ethic of love and nonviolence and that, that, that they understood what good trouble was. You have groups that, uh, like the Waldensians and the Avalardians and, and the Paulicans and these other groups that were persecuted by the official church. And so far as we can tell from history, it's largely because they took seriously Jesus' teaching that the kingdom of God is supposed to impact lives here and now. They took seriously the teaching that, that we're supposed to care about the poor. They took seriously the teaching that, that to warn against being riches and the lure of riches. And that ticked off some wealthy people, and that always invites bad, uh, good trouble in your life. And they were often put to death because of it. We find um, the early Anabaptists, man, which is the tradition we most align with, they caused a lot of good trouble. And they paid for it with their lives. They, they, they just stood up for the truth that you can't inherit your Christianity. You've got to make a choice on your own. And, and they refused to fight back. And they refused to hate national enemies. They refused to participate in any of that. They just weren't good citizens in the eyes of the world. And so they were put to death and tortured all sorts of ways. And great is their heavenly reward because that is good trouble. And you find it throughout the 19th century with the evangelicals. I don't, most people don't know this, but evangelicals in the 19th century, Charles Finney and Wilberforce and those guys, 18th and 19th century, these guys were all trying to, in various ways, take the gospel and, and make a, a, a kingdom difference in society. So it was the evangelicals that were first uh, 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 insisting that if women are equally in the image of God as men, then it stands the reason that they should have equal opportunity to education. Because education determines everything, right? That alters the course of your life. And so it was Charles Finney who was founded the first co-educational college here in America, Oberlin College. And there are advocates for that. They wanted to practice right relatedness, so they bumped up against a world that's wrongly related. And these early evangelicals, they were advocates for getting people. The whole temperance movement was started because alcoholism was such a huge problem and they want to get people freed off of that and other substances. In fact, they, they were the first ones to adopt these, uh, uh, to, to create these adoption agencies because abortion was, an it was rampant in the mid-19th century um, and it was largely because of prostitution. And prostitutions would just, they had abortions all the time. So the church said, what can we do about this? And the church came alongside of these women without judging them and just said, what can we do to walk with you to make it feasible to bring this child full term? Because all the things being equal, we think this is a, a better option. And, and I've read that between, I think it's 1860 and 1910, the abortion rate in America was cut in half simply because the church was saying, what can we do about this? How can we sacrifice to, to, to say that these lives matter and to come around these women who, and their lives matter and, and to, to manifest the truth that these are people who've got unsurpassable worth. Uh, and then, of course, we have Wilberforce in, in, in the uh, United Kingdom who was working to end slavery there just by educating people about the realities of what's going on in the slave trade because in Europe, the slaves were far away, right? They didn't, so you didn't have to see them all the time. So it was easy for the English to have their affordable tea and affordable coffee and all these other conveniences without thinking about how they get them so cheap. They got them so cheap because there's people out there who are paying for it with their blood, <laughs> their slaves. And so Wilberforce and, and other Christians were, were educating people about this to change their thinking about it and their feelings about it 
and they, they were able to bring an end to slavery without violence. Now, there's a lot of folks who are working for that over here in the United States, and we're hoping that that would happen here, but because we already had slaves on our soil for two centuries, it didn't work. But there's still plenty of Christians who are saying, what are some ways, what can we do about this to manifest right relatedness now in this situation? And so we have the Underground Railroad, for example, people working to free slaves in that way. And one of the most beautiful testimonies is that these slaves often, when they would be freed, would come back and now they joined the Underground Railroad to help other slaves get freed. Uh, putting their own lives at risk, that's good trouble. That's good trouble. Hey, what can we do to make a difference in this world right here and now. And of course, then there's the civil rights movement with all the heroes, so many heroes there. Some of them mentioned in the video that we started off with. Uh, it, it's just saying, let's be like Jesus. Let's, let's, let's rally around a crowd around Jesus' principles and, and just point fingers at this collective ouch, this, 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 this white supremacy, this racism, and, and, and manifest what it's doing in all of our lives. So what can we do to bring about good trouble today? What does good trouble look like today? And we could have a long conversation about this. In fact, we'll be having some conversations about this. I'm just going to really quickly just give you four, four kind of principles here that I, I, what good trouble looks like. Number one, uh, it looks like, first of all, abandoning your comfortable faith. Uh, th and this is huge, folks. I I here's the thing. I don't know where it came from, but there's widespread misunderstanding especially in consumer cultures like America and Europe, the idea is that your faith, your faith is there to serve you. Christianity is there to work for you. I've known people who, who give up on Christianity and I ask, well, why? And they'll say, well, it just didn't work for me. Like, who told you it was supposed to work for you? It might get you killed. Um, but it's, it's that my faith should make my life better, nicer, sweeter, more convenient, more relaxing or something. See, if you, if you have that mindset, you're never going to be looking for good trouble because why would you want to be troubled? No, you want your best life now. That's the philosophy. It's best life now faith. Actually, your best life now faith is the faith that teaches you to, to sacrifice for the sake of others. You'll find a joy there that you otherwise couldn't find, but you only know it if you first commit to living this life, to living the self-sacrificial life. You've got to abandon that. It's about my comfort deal. Um, I, I love what one person said, that genuine faith, Genuine gospel, it should, it should comfort the afflicted, but it also should discomfort the comfortable. It, faith is supposed to stir you up. It's supposed to rally. We're supposed to live a countercultural life. That can't be easy. And it, it, it's, it's going to cause trouble. In fact, Jesus said this. Uh, I think it's John uh, 15, in, in the 15th chapter, maybe in the 16th chapter. But he says this, you know, uh, if you follow me, the master's not above the servant. If they hated the, ser if, if they hated the master, or the servant's not above the master. If they hated the master, they're going to hate the servant. If they persecuted the master, they're going to persecute the servants. In this world, you will have trouble. And here, here's a promise of God that you can stand on. In this world, you will have trouble. Expect it. But make sure it's the right kind of trouble. Make sure it's good trouble. Number two, uh, cultivate cross-cultural relationships. So important. Uh, which means you might have to adjust your life. You know, Jesus adjusted his plans just so he could go through Samaria to meet that one Samaritan lady. But to diversify your life. Um, here's the thing. I'm going to talk to my white brothers and sisters here, okay? Because I don't know if you noticed it or not, but I'm white. So I'm kind of qualified in this area. One of the reasons why a lot of white folks don't realize that they have a particular perspective, a particular way of looking at things and interpreting the world, they don't realize that it's because they hang out with all other white people or most other white people who share their worldview. So they don't even notice that they have a worldview. So I've heard too many times people say to me things like, you know, they get mad when I talk about a white perspective on something. They say things like, I don't have a white perspective on something. I just call things as they are. I just see them as they are. Lucky you, wow. How, how, how fortunate that you happen to have the one true perspective. My response to them is, well, that tends to be the white perspective because <laughs> you just think your view is the normal view. And so if anyone disagrees with you, well, that's abnormal. So you have to try to find a reason why it's abnormal. Well, maybe they're playing the race card or, 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 or whatever. It's through relationships that we learn to see how, myop how myopic our perspective is. You only, you only discover that you're, you have a particular perspective when you are in a relationship with somebody who has a slightly different or maybe a radically different particular perspective. And then you try on their way of seeing things. And that can expand you. I remember back in the 90s when the O.J. Simpson trial was, was, was going on. And uh, I was hanging out with, a lot with Norm Blagman. He was our worship leader, African-American uh, worship leader here for 15, 16 years. Wonderful guy. And, uh, uh, and so we, we had a dialogue over this. You know, we were getting to know each other. And I, like most white people, thought it was just obvious that O.J. Simpson was so, so obviously guilty. And I was mystified by the fact that something like 80% of whites thought it was obvious he was, he was innocent. 
80% of blacks thought it was, at least there's reasonable doubt. And Norm was in that category. He, he, he thought there was reasonable doubt. They, he couldn't get, and I was like, how is that possible? How do you, <laughs> well, turns out this might have something to do with it. In my whole life, I have never once uh, been abused by police or seen any, my father or any relative abused by police, pulled over. Uh, I always deserved what I got. It was always fair. And that's my experience. Uh, Norm didn't have quite that experience. Uh, he told me, he showed me through twice where his father was pulled aside for no other reason than he's driving while black in the wrong neighborhood and gets roughed up. And one of the cases, fairly, fairly bad. Uh, and this young boy has to watch this happen. He learned, he grows up being afraid of the police. And you can understand why. And so for him, it was, it was no stretch at all to believe that Mark Furman, who already was known to be a racist, that, that he would plant the evidence to take down a black celebrity. I mean, it was totally plausible for him. It was totally outside of my experience. But see, by getting to know Norm and, and getting on the inside of that perspective, it, it, it broadens me. I can now see things a little more broadly than I used to. Cultivate cross-cultural relationships. A third thing is, is, is partner with others. Um, Here's the thing. We have our kingdom goal, and it's, it's to manifest right relatedness. If there's others who are interested in manifesting right relatedness in certain areas, uh, well, we believe everything in the kingdom is done better in partnerships, done out of relationship, because God's a relational God. And so we ask, who else wants to team up with us? Why do it alone? Why double shovel? And so we have these partnerships. Um, and it, it's, a, it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's, it's a Everything goes better with, with, when you have it done in relationships. So if there's others who are, you know, are interested in seeing that people are fed, because that's part of being rightly related, people should have adequate food, well, we'll partner with them. Say, who can we feed together? Uh, there's people who care about the homeless. Well, we care about the homeless too. How can we partner together? Uh, maybe we can build homes together. Yeah. And, and we're not going to vet everything about them. We don't have to agree with everything that they do. Um, no, if you want to build a house with us, I, we don't care what your beliefs are, whatever, because uh, the people who are going to be living in the house don't care who built the house. They're just glad to get the house. And so we have these partnerships. But it, it creates ambiguity. Because we're doing it for kingdom reasons. They have other reasons, perhaps. Our interests intersect, but they also di diverge at times. Uh, we we, 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 we want to see, we want to throw the parties that, that invite the people that never get invited to parties. Well, there's a group already out doing that called the TAP. And so let's partner with them and just throw parties. We have all these kind of partnerships, but it all creates ambiguity. And see, that's one thing that Christians have tended not to like. Uh, we, what is political? What's not? Where's the line? Sometimes it gets kind of murky. And that's, that's a reality you just have to accept. If you're going to be advocating right relatedness in this wrongly related world and partnering with others to do it. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's, uh, it there's this gray area, you just kind of, an ambiguity that you just can't uh, resolve. So for example, I, I, when the Black Lives Matter thing first started coming around, I had reservations about participating in that. We're encouraging others to participate in that. Because some of the Black Lives Matter uh, uh, protests, there's a lot of anger there that I couldn't say was really, I could understand it totally, but I, I couldn't say that that's kingdom. Uh, and in some cases, violence would break out, though more often than that, that was caused by groups outside of the Black Lives Matter movement. But I, I thought, you know, am I in any way, by, by participating in that, am I condoning all that goes on there? And I had a hesitancy about that. I'm not sure I went, so murky. Uh, well, Here's where cross-cultural relationships are so important. Uh, I was talking a lot with Dennis Edwards at this time, and, and we we're getting to be good friends. And, and uh, he has the same kingdom philosophy that we have. Um, and so I, I would talk with him a lot about these kind of issues. And finally, he helped, he helped me see that, number one, uh, you know, Jesus hung out with people who ruined his reputation, and yet he did it. He hung out with the tax collectors and prostitutes and that got all the religious prissy people all mad at him and whatever. It, it, that was good trouble. He invited trouble into his life because he was willing. His love for them was greater than his concern about his own reputation. And so I sh maybe shouldn't be so worried about what people might think uh, about my reputation. He says he's a pacifist and yet he's participating in this thing that had some violence in it. Uh, maybe I just have to live with that. But the second thing is, is this. T to not participate runs the danger of saying something very loud that you don't want to say, and that's that black lives don't matter. So you've got to participate. If you want, and the reason we want to say black lives matter is because all lives should matter, but it's the black lives that aren't being, that their, their matter is not being acknowledged. And so you've got, in, in a world where there's, there's wrong relatedness and racism, a long history of white supremacy around this, you've got to say, no, these lives matter too. And so you show up, but he says, why don't you show up as a distinct kingdom person? Show up as a chaplain. 
And you go there and you pray for peace. Be a peacemaker there. Be praying for peace and be praying for the movement. You're, you're, you're in solidarity with them, but it doesn't mean you condone everything, uh, but rather use your influence to, 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 to bring about, uh, to kingdomize the situation as much as possible. Enter into partnerships. Despite the ambiguity, we just got to live with ambiguity. And the final thing I'll say is that learn. You need to learn. We all need to be learning on this. In fact, even though I'm mentioning this last, because I'm going to segue over here to Avshita, this really is, I think, the number one thing, the first step in, in really becoming a good troublemaker is to learn. I, and I'll just say this. I, I was shocked when I started to go through college and in graduate school. As I began to learn the truth about American history, I was shocked at how little about American history I learned in junior high and high school. I mean, I thought Christopher Columbus was a great guy. No questions need to be asked. Uh, you know, I thought Thanksgiving was just this great day where the white folks and the Indians learned how to get along and share a supper together. Ho, ho. There's a little bit more to the story. And if you're saying, well, what's... What more is there to the story? Well, that's what you got to learn. There's a whole lot of, it's an eye-opening thing. And you can never understand the dynamics of what's going on now until you understand fully the dynamics of what's going on in the past. Uh, now, Oshida has been, uh, part of her role here, her call here, uh, was to, to, to help bring about this process. You may recall uh, about six months ago, I guess it was, where uh, Oshida said on a panel, she goes, you know, you need to educate yourself. So you have to take some responsibility for this. Uh, it's going to take your initiative uh, to, to, to learn some things that maybe you didn't know that weren't taught before. And, and, and she's committed herself to helping us with that process. So having said that, I would like to turn this over to Oshita. <laughs> well, good morning. Thanks for being here, Oshita. Thanks so much, Greg. So I want to introduce us to our community initiative through the end of February. I am inviting you to join us as we, uh, as we learn together. And we are calling this learning initiative specifically around race, race conciliation, the civil rights movement, we are calling it Race and Peace 2021. So what's Race and Peace? Well, we as a congregation are committed to learning. Part of our tagline is we are learning to love together. And one of the ways that we can love each other really well is by learning from each other, like Greg said. And so we also want to learn from experts and we want to learn how we can be peacemakers in this area. So we as a congregation are committing to, we're hoping to commit 500 hours of all of us collectively mm. learning um, about this issue. On our website, there are tons of resources. Um, there's podcasts, there's books, there's opportunities for you to, to learn if you're not like, you know, Greg and Paul Eddy who like read tons and tons of books, but maybe you learn in different ways. Um, we also have an op a couple opportunities here on, uh, well, not on site, but through Zoom. Sandra Unger is offering a class that begins January 26th, and it's uh, called Tribe, Why Do All Our Friends Look Just Alike? And it's a book club discussion. Um, and that begins on the 26th. And so you, if you participate in that class, will automatically clock like, like five hours through the course of our Learnathon. Um, but we have a generous donor who has, who has uh, promised to contribute for every hour we as a congregation clock. And so the way to participate in Race and Peace is all you do is just commit to your own personal number of hours that you want to learn through the Learnathon. Um, and then as you, as you clock those hours on your own, just come over and log them on the website. There's a link to that on our website. Log it and then that way we can see like how we're all learning and what we're all getting. Um, also, you want to make sure that you're signed up for the rundown because in, in the rundown, uh, every, every so often, I'm going to be coming back and sharing some different resources like how can we learn together as families because on our website, we have resources for children and youth and families. Um, so we want to help you kind of think about how to do that as, there as well. Um, and so we are hoping that we can, we can raise $15,000 that will then go to the one fund. Um, they have this goal of raising a million dollars. Um, and it's specifically going to um, African-American-led churches in the Twin Cities. Um, because most of those have been deeply, deeply affected by the, out, by the global pandemic. And a lot of ways we've stayed pretty healthy because we're a larger church, but these, these smaller like African-American-led churches, many of their pastors are bivocational um, and, and they don't have as many resources. And so we're hoping to give $15,000 by the end of February. So, so you, uh, how does the hours translate into the money? Like what, what's the um, Magic. 
<laughs> That's kind of like, so yeah yeah so it's up to our donor so we we have we have a donor and so so we will um we will be tracking how much we're earning and so hopefully we'll be able to say that we we did all 500 hours okay. and all 15,000 is given but if we get the 500 hours then we'll get this 15,000 yeah, we'll and get it goes 15, to the one fund and it goes to the one and fund. that funds that that's there to support uh, mm-hmm. churches that are underfunded underfunded in, in the twin cities specifically that's, you know, yeah. that, that's such a biblical thing uh, if you read second corinthians 8 and 9 this is what paul the apostle paul does um uh to, to he goes to the corinthians and says you know i, I these churches over in Jerusalem mm-hmm. are hurting. Yep. Uh, and, and, and since you have more than enough, can you share with those who have less than enough? Exactly. Uh, even though they don't know these people personally, but, but that's, I think this is a beautiful expression of the body of Christ. Right. And the ambiguity piece that you talked about in your sermon, Greg, sure. because these are different churches of different, maybe theological frameworks or denominations, but we, but we care about them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we want to support them as well. Amen. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so there are a few ways that Greg and I are going to kind of just talk about how you can lean into this, uh, this love practice, this peacemaking practice of learning. Um, And so, like I said, think about joining Sandra Unger's class on January 26th. But Greg and I are also going to be having, uh, we're going to offer an opportunity to unpack some things on January 24th after you've watched uh, the documentary 13th. And I know, Greg, this is a really, this was a really meaningful documentary for you and and it was really insightful for you. Yeah. So can you just tell us a little bit about 13th and, and, and what kind of things you pulled out of that. I really encourage folks to watch this. It's, it's the kind of thing that most people aren't aware of, but once you become aware of it, it's like huge. So it's just the 13th Amendment, which allows for uh, rights to be taken from a person if they've committed a crime. And uh, I don't want to be a spoiler alert on this, but one of the things, when I went on that Sankofa trip uh, two years ago, and we went to the Legacy Museum, uh, in Birmingham, Alabama, and I, if you can possibly make that trip at some point, make it, because it's, it's powerful. But you see how it, it, on this wall they have, uh, it, it helped me connect all the dots in the history of racism and white supremacy in America, because mm. it, it, it goes back to the very founding of our country as uh, under manifest destiny. It was explicitly a white racist thing. It was obvious to these folks that whites right. should be ruling, uh, and that leads to the slavery. But then it comes, you know, the Civil War, uh, but then after that, you know, they're set free, but then the Reconstruction period where whites begin to find ways, clever ways, ingenious ways of keeping blacks out of power. And it goes to the KKK where you just intimidate people so they, they don't vote. Um, they have a rent an inmate program that lasted 30, 40 years, which was basically <laughs> another form of slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you go to the Jim Crow laws and the redlining and uh, mass incarceration and voter registration issues. And when you can see, it's only when you can see the, the, the continuity that runs throughout this thing. Now you can see white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't connect the dots all together, you can explain, oh, these are little bad episodes that we've had in our past. But they're sort of the exceptions because basically right. it's been pretty good. But no, when you see the continuity of this, it's been a systemic program yeah. that's diabolical and still is going on to this day. So yeah, it was an eye-opening experience. Right. The, um, the viewing of 13th is going to be on your own, so you can, we're encouraging you to watch it on your own, but then come to, come to uh, the Zoom gathering that Greg and I will be hosting on the 24th, and we're kind of thinking of that as like the kickoff to the Learnathon, so you have a whole week to get super egghead, look at all the resources, decide what you're going to be doing for the, to the end of February, and then come, and then that time, Greg, what, I, what I'm excited about is we're going to kind of talk about some of those three lines, you're going to do that, and then I'm going to talk about some spiritual practices and some ways of emotional intelligence and health that we need to be aware of as we like dive into this work because we know it, when you're learning and you're in, in, uh, engaging ideas that are new to you, shame might come up, defensiveness mm-hmm. might come up, fear might come up, overwhelm might come up. And so on that 24th, I'll also lead us through some practices that we hope will ground you in your belovedness and your identity and your kingdom calling as you're doing this work. We also are offering a book club um, through at the end of February. So you'll, again, you'll want to make sure you're signed up for the rundown to get the exact details on that because we're reading together Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man written by Emmanuel Achu. This is a great book if you have a, a lot of questions. In, in fact, in his introduction, he says, the only bad question is the one that's not asked. 
So it's from that very like gracious, inviting posture that Emmanuel Chu wrote this book. And so if you are, these concepts or these ideas are very new to you, we want to encourage you to, to read that book. And then, um, and then at the end of February, I will be hosting a book club dialogue. Um, but the last thing, Greg, I, I just want to say one of the things I've most appreciated from you is about how you've shared your own story of being a white pastor committed to learning about race and peacemaking and specifically how when you went to that Sankofa trip, like you said, um, and you've studied and tried to really understand the kingdom value of race reconciliation. I'm curious what concepts, um, maybe that so many of our friends are going to be enc encountering over the Learnathon, what concepts with this work were the hardest for you to understand that you kind of had to get your brain around? Mm. Um, well, I guess the, 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 the I, I, what I think is the hardest thing for white people in general uh, to get their brains around when it comes to race is the idea that, that uh, you, this isn't a perfect meritocracy that we're living mm -hmm. in. That uh, it, it, there's a kind of this assumption that it's a European sort of framework that, uh, and this is the rugged individualism that America is founded on, that anyone who really works hard at it can, you know, can become anything in America. This is a, yeah. a can-do land of opportunity here. And we'd like to believe that because if that's true, then I, you know, I don't have to feel convicted about all the stuff that I have that other people don't have. I, I, I just worked harder, I guess. Uh, but see, it's not that. And, and um, there are advantages you get being white that you don't notice because you've always had them. And it's waking up to white privilege. Now, mm -hmm. I, just, I know how the brain is structured. I know confirmation bias. It, it's hard for us to notice something uh, when it's to our advantage not to notice it. Yep. And, and, and so a lot of white folks bristle at this white privilege. I don't have privilege. I had to work for everything. And I'm sure you did. But all other things being equal, things aren't equal. And, and, and waking up to that, that I, I, I float in a sphere. I, I, can, I can hover anywhere I want up here uh, and not bump into these walls of resistance. Yeah. But just beneath me, there's all sorts of resistance. And you, you go down deeper and there's more and more. Re but I, the only way I'll ever know about that is by being related to people who can tell me about that. Yeah. And, and that's what I'm talking about, the, the cross-cultural relationships. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it, it's, it's what keeps people from seeing systemic racism. When you have a strict and I talk about this last week a little bit, but when you have a strictly individualistic worldview, you, you, let's say, well, the individual just chose that. They chose to yeah. go, pursue a life of crime. They chose to get on drugs instead of working for a living. They just chose that. And you just don't see the forest through the trees. Yeah. One of the things that this pandemic has done is, I think, it has is, it is exposed uh, one of the prices we pay for white supremacy, one of the mm -hmm. prices we pay for having our own little hierarchy here. Yeah. Because people of color, and uh, uh, blacks and Latinos in particular, I just looked into this, according to the CDC, you're 2.8 times more likely to die than if you're yeah. white. Why yeah. is that? It has nothing to do with physiology. Yeah. Uh, it has to do with access to health care. Is, is that just a coincidence? You know, how, that's systemic racism. That's what we need to be ad addressing. But to do that, you've got to, there has to be a humility to say, maybe I don't know. Maybe I need to listen, you know, and humble ourselves. Get your life from Christ. You know, so you don't get your life from thinking that you have all the right ideas of everything. Yeah. And that opens you up to be able to say, maybe I, maybe I am responsible for some things I didn't think I was responsible for, for because I've got some advantages that other people don't have. How can I use them yeah. for the kingdom? Yep. And one of the reasons why when the MLK planning team came to me and was like, what, like, what can we do outreach-wise? And I thought of learning. One of the, and we were kind of thinking about the name of this series. What was really important for me as a black person in this work learning is that peace aspect. Um, because you talked about that so beautifully this morning, Greg, about how like uh, cruciform love is a love that you give up. Like you, you, you give up your rights. You, you, you're saying, I'm, I'm actually going to allow myself to like come under. And for a a lot of people of color in, in this work, I think we, we're not invited into that calling of like coming under. And so for me, like what I have to constantly remember is that um, I want to be somebody that like, crucif like cruciformly, I think, can I say it like that? Loves my white brothers and sisters Absolutely. by like coming under and seeking peace for them. And, and so I truly hope that this time, these next few weeks are a time where you really do come alive to some of these concepts of race, but you experience um, peace and you experience a cruciform love and we can come together um, with that reconciling love of Jesus. I'm excited about this. I, I, Me too. I, the, our slogan is learning to love together. And this is the perfect model. Let's right. learn to love and together. It, and, and 
right. It's so like MLK, you know, this all coming together and learning. Well, friends, we are so glad that you joined us for this Sunday. There are a few things I want to highlight for you. If you still have some feelings or thoughts coming out of this sermon, Greg, thank you for this beautiful service and thank you for leading us so well. Thank you for all the work you're doing on this education piece. I, I did that. We all appreciate that. It's so fun. Give it up for us. Uh, <laughs> the crowd's okay. going crazy. They're running the aisles. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Okay, so a few things. One, if you would love prayer for any reason, we have prayer warriors right after the service who are ready to pray with you. All you have to do is go to whchurch.org slash Sunday-prayer and there's space uh, prayer ministers waiting for you. You have lots of thoughts. You want to you want to go you want to go deeper. You want to learn a little bit more. The Musecast is for you on Tuesdays. Uh, Shauna and Dan will uh, be dialoguing about this Sunday's gathering. Um, and then there's also gathering groups, and that's a space where you can actually dialogue with others and kind of process more about what's going on. And then there's online groups, um, and, I'll, and to find those, just go to whchurch.org/highlights. Well, as we close, I want to close with a prayer from MLK. Dr. Martin Luther King, this is his prayer for the church. So receive this prayer, church, and continue to learn to love together. Lord, we thank you for our church founded upon your word that challenges us to do more than sing and pray, but go out and work as though the very answer to our prayers depended on us and not only upon you. Help us to realize that humanity was created to shine like the stars and live on through all eternity. Keep us, we pray, in perfect peace. Help us to walk together, pray together, sing together, live together, until that day when all God's children, brown, white, red, black, and yellow, will rejoice in one common band of humanity, in the reign of our Lord and our God, we pray. Amen. Go in peace.